Welcome to episode 19 of The False Neutral. With me is Garrett. Eric is busy getting moved into his new house, I assume, so he's not going to make it this week. But uh, the two of us will try to provide as much wit and entertaining banter as the three of us normally do. So we're going to step yeah. it up. All right. Might be a little tough for you today because you're a little bit sick. Um, I'm getting over it. A uh, little bit hoarse, but uh, I'm I'm mostly recovered from the flu that I was just starting to feel last week when we were recording and then collapsed immediately afterwards. Yeah, I think this is the first episode where we've been sans a person. Uh, we've had several episodes or at least recording days where we weren't able to all meet up and we just kind of moved it out of day. But I think this is the first one where it's uh, no, no, no. I take that back. Very early on, you and Eric did one by yourselves. I remember yes. that now. Yes, that is correct. And uh, yeah, I think that's been the only two-person one. We should have we should have tried to line up a guest, but we didn't know what was going to happen. Then when you yep. do this week in and week out, sometimes you're just going to have to roll with it. Yeah, and these summers can be busy with. Eric moving and you having a birthday and me having a birthday and everything else that goes on summer vacation and all that. So, well, and this past weekend I was able to, it was very cool. I was one of the presenting judges at the art of the car concourse or concourse, oh, which that's it, where that picture came from. Yeah. It, it's not, uh, it's not Amelia Island or uh, the Quail Gathering or Pebble Beach or any of those, but it's also not a local show. Uh, yeah, Peter Brock and Bob Bondurant were there. The uh, the number thirteen championship winning Daytona Coupe was there uh, as a show. They had an incredible number of gorgeous cars, and. Uh, uh, I have to be careful how I say this. My boss does not like undue publicity about his car collecting exploits. So I won't say who my <laughs> employer is. I will just simply say that he was out of town and he normally gives out a corporate award. And I was asked to step in and uh, be one of the three guys that chose a car for our award and get up on stage and make the presentation. Yeah. And uh, we gave it to a four-wheeled entry but they also had a uh a lot of motorcycles there and eric the picture that eric was referring or uh, garrett was referring to was uh a picture of a really gorgeous uh vincent rapide that i sent him the day of the show and uh, they also had a very cool motorcycle that I have not seen in in uh, the flesh before. They had Kawasaki brought a zero-mile 
SG, a 19, I think it was a 65 Kawasaki SG, one of the first 25 Kawasaki's imported into the United States, a 250 single. And the bike that the Australia retro bike was a copy of, uh, it was originally a Maguro, and when Kawasaki bought them, they kind of rebadged them, and this was right in that transition period. A Kawasaki dealer bought it, kept it, and then years later sold it back to Kawasaki, still unused on the original MSL. Yeah. And I heard about them, never saw one. It was very cool. That was neat. Seeing the Vincent was neat. There were a couple of other... Most of the bikes were local, and a couple I had seen before. One really interesting thing was there was a purple 1972 GT750. And I walked up to the guy and I said, man, had the same bike in the same color. Of course, mine was a total rat and nothing like (laughs) this. And we started talking and uh, I said, of course, mine did have a really neat chrome three into one exhaust system on it. I said, but I sold it before I ever tried it with that exhaust. That exhaust was unused. He said, wait a minute. What kind of exhaust was it? I said, it was a straighter. And he said, who did you sell it to? And I told him the name of the local guy. And he said, I bought that exhaust <laughs> from him and put it on my bike. And so that was kind of just a, a one of those small world moments. Yeah, no kidding. And, and uh, so we talked about him and talked about whatever happened to it. And he said, yeah, that exhaust belongs to a friend of mine. And it's still on his bike. And he's still using it. So that was Well, the- yeah, speaking of that motorcycle, uh, my neighbor... And, um, well, I shouldn't say my neighbor. He lives in the, a, a close geographic region to me. So I call him my neighbor, but he's, he actually lives a couple miles away, but nobody cares. he, yeah, he has one of those purple, uh, Kawasaki, um, or, uh, GT 750s. And it, it's kind of like a metallic purple, isn't it? Or like kind of almost pink purple, like magenta yeah, it, type of not, color. I don't think it's me- metallic. It's just kind of a, kind of a really bright enamel with white stripes on it. Which, okay, here's another tie-in. Last week when I talked about the the uh, uh, Popular Mechanics article mm-hmm. on the new Suzuki, it was that bike in that color that the guy said, at least I wouldn't have to look at it while I was riding it. Yeah. So... Well, that uh, GT750, the guy that owns it, is the same person who the uh, my Rebel T350 oh, went to. okay. He's a... Kind of a collector of, uh, well, all motorcycles, really. Also the same person that owns the Triumph that I talked about on our um, British episode. He's got the Bonneville with, um, it's got kind of like the off-road style tires on it. Uh, a person literally trail rode this Triumph for decades. and But it's still in pretty good shape. I mean, it didn't get trashed or anything, but it's got knobby tires on it, and he owns that. Um, it's got several GT 750s, none of which are in particularly great shape, but he's also got some other really interesting motorcycles too, that are pretty nice. He's, um, just kind of a a hoarder of motorcycles. Really. He, uh, was working for Chevron oil, uh, in Africa for years, um, at an oil field in Angola. And while there, he just spent probably ridiculous amounts of time on the internet purchasing motorcycles uh having them shipped to his house here in america and um 
really kind of amassed a, a, quite a collection while he was in Africa. And um, he only returned to the U.S. here a, about a, a year ago to retire. Um, he was basically just living full time over in Africa. So now he's just kind of in the process of tinkering uh, with all of these motorcycles and uh, getting them all running. But I do remember that purple GT 750 or pink or whatever you call it. And so. I, have, I have to apologize. Last week, uh, Garrett told everyone we were going to have a picture of his uh, 350 with the drag bars on it, and I couldn't find the picture. I managed to screw up my copy of our transcript and didn't have the picture. So I'll put that in this week if anybody really cares. <laughs> yeah, and maybe I'll put a better picture on for you so it's not a... Just the drag bars. I actually see the whole rest of the motorcycle, too. But, um, yeah, so that motorcycle's gone. And and for the listeners that have been with us for a little while, this is the motorcycle that um, really kind of had that life-changing experience for me. The first time that I rode it, uh, it was just kind of one of those experiences that reminded me of what motorcycling is all about and also what motorcycling kind of came from. Uh, this motorcycle particularly... Uh, was built exactly the way that you'll see it in the pictures back in the 70s. And uh, it was put in a museum in the early 80s, and it stayed there until about a couple years ago when I went and picked it up along with another motorcycle. Um, and so it looks like a cafe racer, as you would call them now, but it legitimately is a racer. It was built to race and then converted back into street form and uh, just sat in a museum. I, to uh, give it to its new owner, I did just a few things to it. It had some really, really narrow clip-on handlebars on it. And the 30-year-old, quote, Dunlop racing tires. That's literally what they said on the side. And a few other things. But I just kind of went through it, cleaned the carburetors, put new tires on it. Um, yeah, the Continentals. Uh, that we were talking about an episode or two ago, and uh, put some drag bars on it, which actually really gave it a, a good riding position, something that you could actually ride on the street with. Um, so a really neat bike. So check out our um, Hooniverse uh, column, and you'll see a picture of it there. No longer mine. It's with a new owner now. I'm really disappointed that last week I was not online when you were talking to Eric about cleaning carbs, because I... I I would have heartily endorsed a method that has worked for me a hundred percent of the time, rather than spraying uh, any kind of carb cleaner in or something like that. Berry chem dip. Mm -hmm. You get a you get the gallon bucket of berry chem dip. Strip yep. anything off. Although I've noticed it really doesn't destroy plastic or rubber. If you've got an O ring or something, you can't get out. Don't worry about mm -hmm. it. Throw the thing in there, let it sit for 24 to 36 hours, take it out, uh, rinse it off. Uh, I like to use like rubbing alcohol or something like that. And uh, take an air hose, blow out all the passages, you're done. Yeah, I will say uh, I have a gallon of that, but I so rarely use it. Um, it works really well for carburetors that have been sitting for a long time. I'm talking about, like, you know, probably better than a couple few years. Um, out of all the carburetors that I work on, I really just, I solvent wash them. And I use, uh, it's actually a, a truck wash acid um, in concentrated form. 
and I'll usually just acid wash the outside of carburetors. Um, it makes them look new, and the solvent really kind of breaks out all of the kind of gummed up stuff in it. And and so long as you can blow good high pressure air through the pass uh, the passages, I've really never had to use the chem dip stuff. But it does work really well. It's, like I said, if you've got some carburetors that have been sitting for a long time, use it. it. And you can get it at almost any auto parts store. Right. And it is perfect for exactly what Eric was describing. When you've cl- tried to clean it out and that uh, the internal passages of the pilot circuit just have a little tiny bit of fuel varnish on the outside. So it's not like it's blocked, but they're just not the right diameter to flow the fuel that you need. This stuff is just... Man, I've I've used it for 20 years, and I have never not had it work completely so that you could just assemble the stuff. Now, assuming that you have something with the right jetting for your pipe and you're, you know, you don't have a shot motor and everything. If the the problem, most of the time the problem is you got gummed up fuel varnish in your carburetor, and if that is the problem, that'll take care of it, so... Yeah, and I didn't think to ask Eric, but it's worth mentioning, um, and I'll probably mention something to him. When you buy a carburetor rebuild kit, um, oftentimes the carburetors could be used in a, a variety of different years, and not all the time are the jets the right size for the carburetor that you're using. And uh, even more important than the uh, the jets, is the needles, um, I would suggest never, ever using a needle from a generic carburetor rebuild kit or something that's not a factory needle because I have very rarely seen the taper of the needle actually match what is supposed to be in the carburetor. So um, reuse a factory needle if you have it. And then the jetting, uh, refer to the manual and just make sure that you're putting the right size jets in them because, like I said, those carburetor rebuild kits, they come with oftentimes just kind of a generic jet for that particular carburetor and it might not be the one that is supposed to be in it. So, um, that could also have a effect on the way it's running. And I should probably mention that to Eric. So at any rate, you saw the picture of my trans huh? Yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> cool. Very admittedly. Cool. It's not mine. <laughs> it is a, a friend of mine's and on my birthday, I took it from him so I could ride it around um, and I still have it. This weekend, some friends uh, of mine and I are going to ride up to my wife's family. They've got a cabin up in the mountains. And so we're going to do kind of a, a Western United States Transalp ride, if you will. And so I'm going to be riding that. But uh, I wish it was mine. I really do. It's one of my favorite motorcycles. Um, they're interesting. They're a three-year-only motorcycle here in the U.S. And they're pretty anemic. I mean, it makes about 50 horsepower. And about 40 torque. And it's not terribly heavy, but it's heavy enough where, especially at altitude, you got to use every bit of that 50 horsepower just to get up and down the hills. But it's a super cool motorcycle. This particular one uh, that I showed, Pete and Eric, um, I'm sure we can post a picture of it too. It is, uh, it looks brand new. It's absolutely incredible. In fact, it, it was in such nice condition, I had to look at the odometer because I was assuming I was going to see it at two or 300 miles. It looks that lightly used, but it's actually got 11,000 miles on it. But I think that the person that owned it for most of its life must have washed it after every single ride he ever went on, and it never went down. And, it, I mean, there's not a scratch on it 
he couldn't have used any kind of chemical cleaner on it because every bit of the aluminum is perfect. There is not one single corrosion spot anywhere on it. It's really incredible how amazing the condition is on this motorcycle. I am just super jealous that it's not mine, and, and maybe someday I'll be able to pry it out of his hands. But uh, in the meantime, I am relegated to having to just borrow it for the occasional ride. Um, but I thought I would tease you guys with that. You know, at that time, the late 80s, Honda came out with so much cool stuff that only lasted a year or two and yeah. was kind of sales flops, but now are so coveted. I mean, that the Transalp is one of them. Uh, yeah. The CB1, the, the mm-hmm. naked 400 Hurricane motor, uh, that was a really cool bike. Uh, the GB500 is another example that's now, they're incredibly expensive, and yeah. they were giving them away. Uh, another one, the NX250. Yeah. Uh, we had a demo bike because we were, we had like three of them at the dealership and we couldn't sell them. It was like 1990 and we still had 88s. <laughs> and so we, we made one a demo bike trying to convince somebody, really, no, it's a good bike, try it. And what was really wild is back then, a water-cooled 250 you know, Honda wasn't even doing any other water-cooled dual-purpose or, or dirt bikes in the 250 class. And this was like its own little design that they just used for this one bike. And it was a very cool motor. I really liked it. And unfortunately, it didn't catch on. I think I think it was two years. I think they did yeah. it in 88 and 89. Yeah. And, and that's another one that if you can find one in really nice shape, you're going to pay a whole lot more than you might expect for it just right. because people who like them can't find them. Yeah. Well, I feel like in the uh, late 60s and 70s and, and even into the 80s, there's kind of a lot of experimental things happening with motorcycling. Like we were talking about turbos at one point and, and six-cylinder bikes and, and other kind of weird things that they had to at least give a try. And in the U.S. market, not a lot of it caught on. And so they had to abandon it pretty quick. I think things like the Transalp, they were tremendously popular in Europe. But over here, there just really wasn't that much of a market for the adventure bikes yet. Um, But it seems to be coming on pretty strong now. Uh, Almost all of the manufacturers are making, well, not really an adventure bike, more of like a, a platform that's the same, like a sport model platform with a little bit different styling on it to make it seem more like an adventure bike. But um, that kind of style seems to be catching on a little bit more lately. The Transalps are uh, a a really neat bike. I think they sold them up until about 96 in Europe. But yeah, like we said, only three years here. they had multiple generations between that and the, the Africa Twin that we got now, there was a whole series of very similar bikes that kind of evolved over time under both the Transalp and the Africa Twin name uh, that just we never saw. Yeah, and they over the generations, they increased displacement. The, or the Transalp is a 600cc, and I think that they then went to a 650, and then I think a 700cc after that. Um, and it really needed it. I mean, this bike is about 430 pounds with 50 horsepower. What's funny is I was reading a review on the Africa twin here pretty recently, and it's got 94 horsepower. And so by the Transalp standards, it's 
blistering. But the reviewer was saying how um, really it's got just enough. Like if you're riding with a passenger, um, you're going to use every one of those 94 horsepower. And I was thinking about if the guy had to ride a Transalp in the same uh, in the same conditions. I mean, 50 horsepower on a 430 pound bike is really not not a lot, but when you realize that that's all you need to do what you need to do on that bike, it really is. It's fun to ride. It's got a good amount of torque, um, good suspension, and it is surprisingly well built. I was just kind of looking over it recently uh, when I was changing the oil, and it's actually ju- it's pretty incredible how well built it is and how sturdy it is. And and the condition that this one is in 30 years later is kind of a testament to how well built they are. Um Amazingly, the oil change interval, intervals on them are 8,000 miles is what they recommend. I would be a little bit nervous stretching an oil change 8,000 miles, but that's what the manual calls for is an 8,000-mile interval. So. Uh, uh, my friend Rusty has gotten, I told you he was waiting for his dual-clutch Africa twin, and he's gotten it, and... From the little that he's been able to tell me through text messages, it's pretty darn impressive. And he's yeah. experienced enough that uh, he knows enough to know when it's really good and when it's not. He's got a lot yeah. of experience with different bikes. So uh, I'm, I'm eager. I'm going to have try to get him on the podcast and have him talk about that. And also, he's just a very, very interesting guy. He's, he's my favorite riding buddy for yeah. the last 20 years. And we get together about once a year and take a couple days and try to go ride somewhere in the Midwest together. He's out in Colorado. I'm in Missouri. So we usually end up meeting somewhere in Kansas. Yeah. Too bad he wasn't closer to me. I think it would be really cool to uh, meet a guy with an Africa twin while I was riding the Transalp. And <laughs> that would be cool. kind of do a comparison, you know, a 30 years later comparison on uh, the two bikes. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I'm dying to ride an Africa twin. If I can find one around me, uh, I'll invite myself to do that. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of interesting. You know, Honda's kind of back to doing a lot of the same kind of creative stuff they were doing in the late 80s that we were just talking about, where we don't know if there's a market from this, but let's throw something up on the wall and see if it sticks. Yeah. And, and you know, Honda, I, what I love about their experimentation is it's almost always at least mechanically good. Honda's engineering is, is really good. And it seems like they've made some not great motorcycles, but largely their mechanics and their engineering and everything is so good. In fact, uh, one of people's complaints about them is that they're so clinical. Everything's just so refined. And I think you see that in things like the Africa twin, um, but you know, and not to say that every single motorcycle has been like that, but generally they've done pretty well with yeah. even experimental motorcycles. Some of their, the, the smaller, uh, V4s, well, 750 and smaller V4s initially, they had some problems with, uh, valve seats and, uh, some of the top end wear issues that they had. Mm-hmm. And that kind of rolled down to the, I know the VTR 250 had some issues. Uh, the one that really sticks out as being the one real clunker that Honda put together was the MXV 250. That was a yeah. 
Asian only. I think it was may have just been domestic Japanese only or just Asia, but it was uh, a three-cylinder V3 two-stroke, and it had a bank of two cylinders, and then at 90 degrees, a single cylinder. And uh, it was supposed to kind of play off of their success with the V3 Grand Prix bike that they had. But it was a totally different design. Uh, the Grand Prix bike had one horizontal cylinder, and the street bike had one vertical cylinder. In order to balance it, they had to make the single piston weigh as much as the two pistons, so they used a solid crank pin, a really huge mm. small end bearing with a solid crank pin, and the the bike was just a disaster. They seized up, yeah. and the only way they could correct it is they simply changed the amount of premix, or uh, the injector rate, <laughs> so that yeah. it was actually in, injecting more oil, and then it ended up where it was so much that all the backs of the bikes very quickly, once they did the fix, ended up just covered in black soot. Yeah, the fix quote. <laughs> and there was so much oil going out the exhaust that it would clog up and varnish the muffler. So they sounded incredibly loud because they just turned them into straight stingers eventually yeah. when enough oil baked onto the, the, the muffler material that... So you had this super loud, very oily, smoky machine that was constantly covered in soot and still seized. So it yeah. was just like, it was like, okay, I, I almost want one just because everybody talks about how great Hondas are. And I just want to have their one big, spectacular failure. Yeah. Well, in our race engine shop, we do a lot of the uh, Honda 450 motors and Yamaha 450 motors, and we do them for both the quads and the dirt bikes. And we do about a, I would say three, maybe even five to one ratio of Yamaha motors to Honda motors in terms of failures. So uh, we might do one Honda motor for every three, four, or even five Yamaha motors. And this is especially true in the ATVs. Uh, in 2007 and later, the ATVs had an oil squirter provision um, that was, uh, it, it sprayed oil up underneath the piston to the upper rod bearing. But right. before that, they didn't have that oil squirter. And they had a huge amount of crankshaft failures because they didn't have this oil squirter. And the Yamahas, um, Yamaha never kind of admitted to a problem other than they just added that oil squirter in the 07 and laters and corrected the issue. But especially the 06 and earliers had just a disproportionate number of failures. And so a lot of times people ask me, what do you recommend for a off-road bike? And I'll always say, well, a Honda has half as many camshafts so you have less moving parts. And in our shop, there is a, a, a much more uh, disproportionate number of uh, Yamaha engine failures than there are Hondas. And so that's kind of where I gravitate towards. I, I think that Honda, ultimately, in the, in the motocross area, both power-wise are pretty similar. But Honda seems to make a, a product out of the box that lasts a little bit longer than Yamaha, from my perspective. Yeah, I have to wonder if, you know, when we're talking about some of the weird stuff that didn't sell at the time, 
Is this the time that we should be picking up a DN01 or an MN4? Some of the really wild automatic bikes they've come out with the last couple of years, or even like a, a what is it, the CTX 700 or something. You know, the stuff that people aren't thinking is successful now may be stuff that people really covet in 20 or 25 years from now. Well, I don't know. It's hard to say because on one hand, thinking and just using the Transalpin as, a, as an example, to find a really nice example of it, you're going to spend a few thousand dollars, probably three, four, maybe even $5,000 for a really, really nice one. And then when you start getting to that price, you start thinking about the things that you could buy for that same amount. And while the Transalp might hold its value over time, uh, you can buy a, a brand new motorcycle for really not that much more than that. And so some of these obscure bikes, if you have to have one, if it was something that you had a poster of, you know, then then maybe. But if you're just really wanting to to ride I don't know if I would buy one because of what you could buy a new motorcycle for and have parts availability and service availability. I I do get that, but obviously enough people do want to spend the money for the prices that some of these older bikes are going for. The GB500, oh my goodness, they're going for twice what they sold for new and towards the end, they were selling them for half of the MSRP. So, you know, yeah. you, you, people are paying four times what I paid for mine. Yeah. And, uh, well, you know, it probably if you would have asked that same question, but used some different models of motorcycles like uh, Yamaha made a TDR 250 and they didn't sell them here in the U.S., but they did in Canada. And I know people do uh bring them down every once in a while if you would ask me would you buy that motorcycle for five thousand dollars i would say yes absolutely it's kind of like an adventure bike but with the um like an rz type of motor in it it's a 250 cc motor uh two stroke with big up pipes on it and it's really kind of an interesting motorcycle i like it a lot yeah the original the very i think it was what 88 was the first year they made them the the bright blue with the yellow mm -hmm. graphics on it oh, yep has long long been a bucket list bike for me <laughs> yeah although the, all the ones i see have chambers on it and i would really want the stock pipes i would really want to have yeah. the exactly the way it came from the factory yeah um for as into performance as i am and i love race bikes and i love um like expansion chambers but on something like that i think it's best to leave it how it was meant to be uh they make okay power but they're never going to be blistering and so i don't think that throwing a set of expansion chamber uh you know hand coned exhaust on it is really going to change the characteristics of the bike enough to make it worth it i like the way they look just the way they came from the factory i would want it the bright well if it were that year the blue with the yellow and the kind of retro look i love that and i would want to keep it exactly that way and I would love to have one of those motorcycles, but I can't really place it like how I would use it because on one hand it would suck off road. It really would like moderately suck on road. Uh, well, I shouldn't say suck. It's just, it's not, it's not great at anything. It's just okay at a bunch of things. 
Yeah, and and quite honestly, I would have to be somebody who could collect motorcycles, who could have a yeah. Transalp or a TDR250 to take out and go, wow, there's nothing else that feels like this. You know, yeah. it's just so unique. And then put it away and have something else that I was going yeah. to take on a trip or commute on or whatever. And I don't have that kind of resources to, right. to be able to have something that expensive that's just going to be a... Oh, that's a neat thing to think about, a novel thing to take out every once in a while. Yeah, that's a good point, because something like the TDR250, it's awesome to look at. It's even awesome to ride to the store, but it's definitely not something that you would want to have as your daily motorcycle. Whereas something like the CTX700, I think you probably would. It's a good cruiser motorcycle. You could ride it anywhere. Um, so, you know, maybe if you did want to spend the money and find kind of something obscure, I think that would be cool, too. And uh, I want to say thank you to Scott Schnettler on Facebook. He posted a link for us that is the recall news that Kimco is recalling K-pipe motorcycles for incorrect <laughs> gear shift pattern in violation no <laughs> of DOT requirements. Uh, yeah, that was uh, they posted a link to Motorcyclist Magazine, uh, Motorcyclist Online, that I think just broke today. That's uh, pretty funny. You called that. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> and it's interesting the way they said it. Uh Kimco's recalling certain model gear, nine, uh, 2016 K-pipe motorcycles manufactured from Mar March 1st to May 25th. In the affected models, the gear shift pattern was assembled in a reverse sequence when compared with the standard setup. As such, these motorcycles fail to comply with federal motorcycle, federal motor vehicle safety standard number 123 motorcycle controls and display. So they're, they're treating this as a, uh, uh, incorrectly, uh, incorrectly assembled. It was like, yeah, well, well no. <laughs> and unfortunately it says that, uh, if the motorcycle shifts opposite of other motorcycles, which it does, the rider yeah. may be confused and may select the wrong gear, adversely affecting control of the motorcycle and increasing the risk of a crash. The remedy for this recall campaign is still under development. The manufacturer has not yet provided a notification schedule. <laughs> so, uh, it's, and it's motorcycles like, like that where they're, they're so inexpensive. I mean, I, what do they do to remedy that problem? It seems like if they had to repair it, any and all profits that they could have possibly made would be gone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. The only thing I can think they may be able to do is have some kind of external flip-flop linkage that you know yeah your 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 push and pull change right. and maybe you can do something like that but yeah as that for replacing the motor is... or splitting it and putting in new transmission no forget part, about it that's it, not gonna happen yeah and they would they like nobody here would even do that i i think that they would probably sooner just give you a new motorcycle and sell that one somewhere in europe where they yeah, don't cause, care because i don't want the the mechanic at Freddy's discount scooter shop ripping <laughs> right. into my uh, crankcase. Yeah, Frank's lawnmower repair. Exactly. <laughs> your motorcycle. Yeah. Now I uh, have to say I do like Kimco. I I 
I don't have any negative presuppositions about their quality or anything like that just because they're a bit of a second tier manufacturer. Yeah. Um, although if you ask Cager on two wheels about the, the old Kimco that he, uh, and, and they have brought something over that's remarkably similar to that, but it was, uh, Oh no, 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 that was not a Kimco. That was a, uh, uh, CF Moto? I don't know. Uh, I can't think of what it was that. Uh, it might maybe maybe it was a. I'll have to go back and look at the the one that he just bashed really bad. Mm. I, I don't remember if it was a, a CF Moto, a Kimco, or a. It wasn't a Sim. There's one more manufacturer I'm trying to think of that's kind of in that second tier, not quite down to the the no name yeah. Chinese scooters, but uh, yeah. Well, it makes me wonder why even that motorcycles became the standard that you would shift one down and X amount up. Um, this T350 Rebel that I'm riding, it has rear sets on it. But it, it was all kind of modified by the person that built it, it seems like. But there is no linkage to change the shifting. Um, on a normal one, an un- unmodified Rebel, the shifter went um, kind of forwards from the right. shift point. Right. right. This one, it goes backwards. Yeah, so the shifting is 180 backwards. degrees, so it's exactly. upside down. But it actually feels so natural when I'm riding it. In fact... This was the first motorcycle that I rode where the shifting was backwards like that. And when I rode it, it seemed almost more natural than how it should be. And I got I got to thinking about the benefits of being able to shift like that. In fact, having your foot on top of the shifter when you're in a hard lean and being able to click out of a turn down, uh, it, it seemed like it would make more sense, actually, to have it opposite. Well, that's the way most of the Works Grand Prix bikes work. It and seems I, like it would make more sense that way. Yeah, and uh, for years, I mean, there there was the rotary shifting where it went from neutral, and then you could go from fifth to neutral to first, just keep clicking up, and it would yeah. rotate through all of them. Um and of course, up until 1975, we had some on the right, some on the left. You know, they, yeah. they were switched with what foot you used, and they they said, "Okay, we're going to standardize." And I think they just kind of picked the one that was most popular at the time. Yeah. But I do know that I, I'm not sure what it's like now, but I know for a long time uh, there was an article I read about Eddie Lawson that his race bike was. Op, you know the opposite race GP pattern, mm-hmm. and he could go from that to a street bike and not even have to think about it. His muscle memory right. was so adaptable that he he just he could say, "Okay, this one's different," and not have any of that when you weren't thinking real sharp about it. <laughs> yeah, going, "Oops." Well, was- I'm definitely not Eddie Lawson. When I first started this motorcycle. I knew it, that it shifted backwards, but when I first started it and I went to ride it, it just didn't even occur to me to shift backwards. So I clicked down, and it like it didn't feel like it was in first gear. It was like slipping the clutch too much. So I clicked down and clicked down, 
And, you know, next thing I know, I'm in fifth gear or sixth gear or whatever it has. And, like, you know, I'm looking at it, trying to figure out what the hell's going on and realize that it was shifting backwards. So I was actually in top gear. But um, so I'm definitely me, not Eddie Lawson. But I did experience riding this motorcycle that you get such a better positive well, not an upshift, but, you know, backwards, a downshift. But going from, like, first to second gear, I like that shifting down with the ball of your foot and getting that really positive click. I feel like you're a lot less likely to misshift having that reverse pattern, and I really like that. Well, that makes sense, because even if you've got a little shifter pad on the front of, on the top of your boots... Mm-hmm. That's a soft, flexy, smushy surface, whereas right. when you are have the sole of your shoe on it, you know, you've got a nice, hard, flat surface that you're using to shift with. And I think it's just more intuitive to step down than have to f- slide your toe under there to shift. Yeah. it. If you're really accelerating, I can see that you would want to just be able to bang it down and not have to do that when you're busy paying attention to going faster and faster and it would would make more sense i'm just hopelessly i've i've got muscle memory that i'm never going to rewrite so (laughs) yeah yeah that's true me either uh it, it makes me think about and sand uh ATV racing, sand drag racing, oftentimes they use what's called an override transmission where you don't actually use the clutch to shift. Mm-hmm, you just right. pull power shift through the gears. Right. And if you hit a bump, your foot is on the foot peg and your toe is beneath the shifter. And so you, if you hit a bump, and it doesn't really take much of a bump, but if you even touch the shifter, it clicks gears. Right. And so you could hit just a small series of bumps and go from first to fifth in 20 feet. And then kill your whole race. Um, that might help too, having to shift reverse for that. But so yeah. Well, that's that is why one of the things that's on the docket for Bull Talkenstein is a crossover linkage, so that yeah. the shifter will actually still come out of the right side of the case. Yeah. Unless I invest in a left side shift seventy five and later set of crankcases, which I could do, but it's another hundred dollars and i'm so far <laughs> between those speedometers and <laughs> well, everything it, else there's so much to do on that and also if i if i all of them the way Taco solved their problem was they they used to have a shift shaft that stuck out one side well they just bored a hole in the other you know cast a, a left side mm-hmm. that had a shift shaft that stuck out through the other side of the crankcase. So you actually yeah. could mount it on either side, depending yeah. on two different uh, shift levers that you could use on either side of the bike. And you just put a rubber cap over the other side so that to protect Ooh. the splines. And a lot of the trials riders were used to the right hand, and I guess motorcycle, uh, motocross people too, wanted to keep that. So they actually had a kit that you could convert the brake and shifters on either side. You could yeah. buy an accessory reversing kit because they had to move it over to sell it in the United States, but some people wanted it the old way so you could switch it back. Yeah. So if I do it so that it shifts on the right side of the crankcase and then has a a shaft that takes it over to 
a shifter on the left, then I can use any motor any year because they all bolt up the same way. So yep. that's my plan. And I, it's been a while since I've been able to work on it, but uh, I took one of my sick days this week when I wasn't laying in bed and I went down and cleaned out my workbench and gave myself enough room because I actually cut the frame. The I told you guys, I think, that I I had been trying to work up a seating arrangement and the the rear triangle was just so weird the way it hooked up. I was like, okay, I got to cut this off. So I I got out the the cutoff grinder and whacked it off. And I'm in the process of machining up little adapters that are going to help me build a new rear triangle. And I have to make it so that if my welds, because I'm an amateur welder, mm-hmm. I want to make sure that it's something that has secondary locking of some sort. So if my weld breaks, it all stays together. So I'm, I'm actually thinking about having a knurling it and having a just a slight press you know tap fit in there and then having a hole drilled in the side so i can weld it through the side and around the joint but it sticks down in there far enough with some knurling on it that there's still a mechanical connection between the 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 end of the frame tube and where i'm adding on my little extension so i've been very carefully trying to do that because i don't want to this is mild steel frame tubes that were made in in Spain in the seventies, yeah, you don't want to trust that metallurgy. I could, I could, you know, try and press fit something in there and just split the side of the tube wide open. So, I'm being, I'm taking my time very slowly to think about how I really want to put this together. So, I'm trying not to rush, but I'm kind of getting to the point where I was like, okay, I want to work on this now. Yeah, I want to see well, some think, progress. Yeah, no kidding. I think it's about time that you get that thing done and on the road, huh? Oh, it's going to be years, years and years and years and years. <laughs> a, a a tortoise in the hair story, but there's no hair, just a tortoise. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I think well, we should probably wrap this up. We've gone about two thirds as long as we normally do, and there's only two of yeah. us instead of three, so I think we can sign off. And you know what I want to do is um, I I'm going to try and see if we can get a guest for next week. I have a couple of different ideas about someone I can get. So if you're listening to this and you're going, yeah, I'm getting sick of listening to these guys, we are going to try and get some more guests on the show, hopefully as soon as next week. Yeah. And um, if you guys like European motocross, especially, uh, a friend of mine is going to be joining us pretty soon. He currently is racing the Old Timers National Series down in California. Well, it actually is all over the West Coast, but it's a, a motocross series for people over, I think it's over 55. Um, he attempted to do it last year and ended up breaking his wrist, I think, on the first race of the season. And so that didn't really work out for him. Uh, but he is back at it. He's trying it again this year. Um, and then after that, he's going to join us and talk about all sorts of things European. Um, he's a big bull taco and CZ and all that kind of stuff, collector and um, KTMs. Uh, so we'll have him on and and pick his brain a little bit, too. He's a really philosophical guy, too. So um, we'll have a lot of questions probably about what is motorcycling to you. So you'll like him. He's cool. Oh, and one more thing. I didn't realize until I was going through and editing down our episode where uh, we talked uh, from last week. 
the guy that sent me all the information about the BSA advertising, his name is Eric T. I didn't realize Eric Tritko is Eric T. Hmm. Is Eric secretly a British <laughs> bike guru and he's been hiding it from us? Is Eric T keeping some of his wealth of information secret in in a, a different persona? Maybe I'll if to, you see Eric wearing week. his leather jacket with the studs on it and, and his fifty nine the back picture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which would be highly surprising considering when we brought up the BSA advertisements, he would have had to sit there knowing the whole story Silent. and not yeah. bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I don't think yeah. that that's the same Eric T, but I thought it was an amazing, another one of those small world, very coincidental things. Yeah. Well, at any rate, if you get a chance, go to Hooniverse and comment uh, any questions that you might have. Uh, leave them for us. And also at Twitter, you can find us at The False Neutral. And on Facebook, too, um, we are The False Neutral. So if you have any questions, you can find us there. Uh, and, yeah. Very good. Uh, we'll see you next week, hopefully with Eric and possibly with someone else as well. All right. Take it easy. Bye-bye.